take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. I will be preaching today from Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7, focusing on verse 6 and in particular the title of the coming Messiah as the mighty God. Please hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Amen. Let us go to God in prayer. Holy Father, we are gathered here before your word. We pray that through the mediation of Jesus Christ that your Holy Spirit would anoint our ears, that he would anoint my lips, and that you would send forth your word and power both to sanctify and to save. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Author Courtney Anderson writes of Adoniram Judson's conversion story in his famous biography of the Baptist missionary. Adoniram was raised by congregational parents, but when he went off to college at what is now known as Brown University, he became best friends with a young man named Jacob Jacob Eames, who was a deist. And this friendship eventually led Adoniram to apostatize from the faith of his parents. And this had gone on for many years, and a few years later, one particular night, Adoniram was rooming at an inn. And this night, in particular, he was struggling with his newfound deism. He was having doubts, uh, but he was also wrestling with the fear of death. And probably what exacerbated it was he was rooming next to another young man whom he didn't know, he didn't know who it was, who was sick and dying. The next morning, Adoniram woke up surprisingly refreshed, and he reproached himself. He said, my best friend Jacob Eames would be ashamed of me for my doubt. He quickly went to the innkeeper to settle up, and he asked him, he said, How's the young man doing in the room next to me? And he replied, He is dead. He died in the night. And with some of the doubts from the previous evening returning, Adoniram asked him, Who was he? And the innkeeper replied, Oh, he was a young man from Brown University. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Now that shock is similar to the effect that this prophecy has, except this prophecy doesn't give a shock of grief, but of hope. 
Yahweh through Isaiah is going to tell us his surprising announcement of grace, the advent of his Messiah, and the titles by which the, the Messiah will be made known. And you need to heed this prophecy if you would partake of this grace, if you would understand Messiah's person, and if you would submit to him as the mighty God. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 is part of a larger scene which begins in chapter 7 verse 1 which we might title a word to Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria had allied together in view of the approaching Assyrian army and they threatened to wage war on Ahaz if Ahaz did not join their coalition. Hence Isaiah writes that Ahaz and company shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And Isaiah was sent by Yahweh to give a word of deliverance to the king if he would but trust and obey. Ahaz chose instead the works of the flesh via alliance with Assyria. And from that point on, the house of David deteriorated until it disappeared into the annals of history. And King Ahaz is a continual reminder of what Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser Jr. once wrote that the only way we can have God is by relying on Him and using Him. Yahweh was going to both preserve a faithful remnant and become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. To have Yahweh as one's God is both wonderful and terrifying. Indeed, chapter 8 ends with a terrifying note of the wrath of God. Look at verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And this is why you need to see the complete surprise that this prophecy is. This word of hope is completely unexpected. Isaiah writes in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. On the coattails of wrath comes the embrace of mercy. Notice in this surprising announcement the reversal of the darkness in verses 1 and 2. Isaiah most likely preached this oracle in 733 B.C. when Assyria invaded the two northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And due to their position, they housed a lot of hubbub of the surrounding nations But they were also the first tribes to face the onslaught of the Assyrian invasion, which theologically we must understand is they were the first ones to face the covenant curse of God. But Isaiah says that they will be the first ones to experience the messianic blessing of God. And not only them, but Gentiles will be among them. So from the outset, Isaiah has in view more than national Israel. The surprising announcement continues in verse 3 with the renewed people. In Isaiah's call in chapter 6, Yahweh tells Isaiah to fulfill his ministry until Israel is a dying tree that has been felled with only a stump remaining. Sounds like the type of verses to advertise your seminary with. But God was not finished with his people because the, the stump remaining was the holy remnant the remnant of believers preserved. And in verse 3, Isaiah, via the revelation of the Holy Spirit, is standing in the future and looking back and seeing that renewal happen in history. 
You can see this because he talks about it in the past tense in verse 3. So the people of God are renewed in number. They've multiplied. But they're also renewed in victory and in worship. Isaiah says that their harvest are bountiful and that their victory over enemies is complete. And we think, okay, okay, that just belongs to the Old Testament. But theologically, we have to realize what that means. According to Deuteronomy 7, those were tokens of covenant blessing. And so Isaiah is trying to teach us that the light of Messiah restores covenant blessing to the people of God. That renewed people from among Israel and from among the nations. Notice too that the light of Messiah brings a repeated deliverance in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. It begins with a four conjunction for the yoke of his burden. So Isaiah is explaining the divide the spoil at the end of verse 3. And he likens this repeated deliverance to Gideon's deliverance in Judges chapter 6 through chapter 8. And you'll remember that in that deliverance, Israel was in bondage to the Midianites. But do you remember how the Lord delivered them? Chapter 7, verse 2 of Judges, Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And so God chose 300 men to defeat an entire host of Midianites and prove to Israel that their salvation was by His grace. And Isaiah is saying that the light of Messiah will bring that repeated deliverance but on an even greater scale. Israel's sin in verse 4 was going to bring greater burdens, greater oppressors, and greater taskmasters greater than their fathers had experienced in the land of Egypt. But Isaiah says that Yahweh is going to deliver from these things. And in verse 5, he says that their triumph, their victory, will be total, and their reward will be full. So in other words, with the advent of Messiah, Yahweh is again going to teach His people that their salvation is by His grace alone. So in the surprising announcement, we see a reversal of the darkness, we see a renewed people, and we see a repeated deliverance. Now before we break into hives trying to figure out how this prophecy fits into our end times view, perhaps we should consider what this reveals about God. Author Terry Linville writes of the perhaps fictitious time that Uh, G.K. Chesterton was debating George Bernard Shaw. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was known as a a large man, and Shaw came up to him and hit him on the stomach. And so what are you going to name it when uh, when it's born? And Chesterton, without missing a beat, said, If it is a girl, I shall name her Mary. If it is a boy, I shall name him John. But if it is gas, I shall name it George Bernard Shaw. (laughs) Typical Chesterton, unguessable, but a remarkable wit. And in the same way, this surprising prophecy is typical Yahweh. How unguessable and fascinating Yahweh is. This is one of the aspects of God's holiness, that He is completely other in His thoughts and in His ways. On the verge of wrath, Yahweh extends grace. 
He covers in darkness and then he reverses into light. He fells a dying cedar to grow a living redwood. He delivers his people and they don't contribute a finger to it. Do you have a holy adoration for Yahweh? Because Yahweh has reversed the darkness. And not only when Jesus of Nazareth entered Galilee, there is a sense in which Yahweh continues to reverse the darkness in his people's lives. Yahweh is renewing his people, the Israel of faith. Today is evidence of that because we have gathered to worship the one true triune God. Yahweh has delivered his people in the Exodus, not from Egypt, not from Assyria, not from Babylon, but from sin, from death, and from hell. And has he not given us tokens of this? He has given us tokens of this in water, in bread, and in wine. We shall see the token of it in water today, that God delivers his people. This is your God. As the hymn said, come and Behold Him. But as Isaiah's prophecy continues in verse 6, he introduces another four clause. And he shows us secondly Messiah's advent. So the surprising announcement of grace in verses 1 through 5 is due to the advent of Messiah. So what does Isaiah want us to learn about Messiah? First, he reveals Messiah's ancestry in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So the Messiah will be man, but more precisely, he will be brought into this world as a man. He will be born. And this description of the Messianic figure as a son and as a child connects to chapter 7, verse 14, if you'll turn back there real quick, where Isaiah gives a sign to Ahaz. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. So before we even get to his title as mighty God, Isaiah is strongly identifying this messianic figure with God. And so if this messianic figure is born to the virgin, then it follows that he has a family tree. He has biological roots in previous generations that he is connected to. And Isaiah keys us in on what family he belongs to, King David. And we have further illumination on this point in the parallel prophecy of the Messiah in chapter 11, verse 1, where Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father. So Isaiah is telling us that this messianic figure will be a male child born in the lineage of David. So he tells us about his past, but he also tells us about Messiah's future. He continues in verse 6, and the government or princely rule shall be upon his shoulder. So within one verse, we've gone from a babe, from a son, from a child to a full-grown son. You see that? 
First he's a babe and a child, and now within one verse, he is now a full-grown son. He's, in, he's a royal king. The princely rule shall rest on his shoulder. Verse 7, he continues, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The house of David failed miserably with Ahaz. And it disappeared from sight, from sight in the intertestamental period. The house of David disappeared from sight. And yet here is God's solution to that epic failure. An infant child miraculously conceived who will rule and shepherd as God originally intended. It reminds me of the story of Joshua Chamberlain. Schweikert and Allen tell us that he was a quiet professor of rhetoric at a college in Maine who was drafted and fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. And Chamberlain's men held the far left flank of the Union troops line, and the Confederates were storming this area knowing that if they got past Chamberlain's men, they would win the battle and perhaps win the war. But Chamberlain's men refused to budge. They eventually ran out of ammunition. And then the quiet Chamberlain yelled, Bayonets out! And the Confederates, exhausted, looked uphill, and they were stunned to see Chamberlain and his men running full speed in a bayonet charge at them. Chamberlain later remarked, The instinct for honor outweighs the instinct for safety in battle, so much for a quiet professor of rhetoric. He really was the least likely solution to win the battle at Gettysburg. And that is like what we have here The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Here we have a babe, a child, miraculously born into a family that has seemingly disappeared into the annals of history because of sin. And God will raise him up to rule his people as he originally intended. So Isaiah's told us Messiah's ancestry. He's told us Messiah's future. Now he will show us in the latter part of verse 7, his motivation. He writes, what is the, what, what's the driving force behind all of this? The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. It, it's the hot, holy sweat of the Lord keeping to His word that guarantees its fulfillment. Now, in these messianic prophecies, we must constantly bear in mind the Davidic covenant. You don't need to turn there, but that covenant can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And listen to the promises that God made to David in this covenant. In verse 8, David is promised kingship. In verses 9 and 10, God promises Israel victory over enemies through the king. In verse 11, David is promised a lineage, a dynasty, for the purpose of a kingdom. In verses 12 and 13, Yahweh will build David a house lineage so that they can in turn build a house dwelling for Yahweh. And it's these promises that are behind this prophecy, the covenanted word of God, who refuses to budge or renege on any of His promises. In this word, God has fulfilled. Jesus of Nazareth is of the lineage of David. The scripture gives us two of them. You can read one in Matthew and you can read the other in Luke. As we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he is the child conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
He inherited the throne of David when he sat down on God's throne post-resurrection. He is in himself both the house lineage of David and the house dwelling of Yahweh. One person, truly man, truly God, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus of Nazareth is building his kingdom now through his church, not in a future millennium reign with only national Israel. And Isaiah writes that he rules with justice and with righteousness, and this fact makes Jesus Christ both attractive and dangerous. If you have bent the knee to him as Messiah, then you are blessed because you have taken refuge in the Son. But if you have not bent the knee to Jesus as Messiah, then you are in danger because he will break you with a rod of iron. And Messiah's kingdom always does this. The ordering of Messiah's kingdom always brings both blessing and cursing, salvation and damnation. How serious a thing it is then to be a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you are a citizen of this kingdom that's prophesied about. And how serious a thing it is then to be outside of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you are a citizen of the kingdom of Satan, which kingdom Messiah Jesus will smash. So Isaiah has showed us the surprising announcement of grace. He has detailed us in on the advent of Messiah. And finally, he will tell us the titles of Messiah, and in particular, we'll look at his title, Mighty God. In Old Testament thinking, a person's name revealed their person and their work, their character and their ways. This was true for men, but it was even more true in a more profound sense for the Lord. His name, Yahweh, signifies his self-existence and his covenant presence. His other titles, El, El Shaddai, Elohim, reveal that he is the one true and living God. And it is against this backdrop that we are to understand the titles or the names that are given to Messiah. So first, the title God is attributed to Messiah, Mighty God. This title God is translated from the Hebrew noun El. And El is the singular form of the plural noun Elohim. (coughs) Per Alec Mott, you're an Old Testament scholar. If we were to ask the God of Israel, what are you? He would reply with one of those two nouns, meaning, I am God, I am El, I am Elohim. El denotes God in his transcendent majesty, glory, and strength. And so this title of God is attributed to Messiah. Now, the adjective that we translate as mighty comes from the Hebrew gibor. And mighty is a good translation, but it's probably better to translate it as a warrior because it's often used in the context of war, both with men, but important for our text this morning, of God. Psalm uh, chapter 24, verse 8. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Jeremiah 20, verse 11. But Yahweh is with me as a dread warrior. 
Jeremiah 32, verse 18. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God. There you have both of them. Whose name is Yahweh of hosts. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. It's also uh, used to describe Yahweh in the book of Isaiah itself. Chapter 10, verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. You actually have both of them there. El Gabor. Isaiah 42, verse 13. Yahweh goes out like a mighty man. So, scripturally, it's without a doubt that this, these two titles, mighty God, are attributed in an exclusive way to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. Now, I want you to stay here in Isaiah for a moment. And we need to learn to wrestle with these things before we make a beeline to the answer key. Peter himself wrote, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, they wrestled. The Apostle Paul dubbed these matters the mystery of Christ. There is what I would call a prophetic puzzle in Isaiah to zeroing in on this messianic figure. If we consider the book of Isaiah as a whole, there's three major sections. And the main figure that's highlighted in the first section is the coming Messiah who is dubbed the royal son. He's prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 9 and then in Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah clearly says that he's a man, but he also clearly identifies him with Yahweh. Now remember, Isaiah did not have the New Testament. What are we to do with that? And the second major section of the book, the figure that's highlighted is the capital S, the suffering servant of the Lord. And he is contrasted with the royal son in that his mission is depicted in primarily negative terms. In other words, he comes to suffer and to be a substitute for Yahweh's people. Again, we must ask, what are we to do with that? In the third and final section, Isaiah talks about the coming conqueror, capital C, who comes in triumph over God's enemies and bringing salvation to God's people. So on the face of it, in just the book of Isaiah, we have the royal son, we have the suffering servant, and we have the coming conqueror. And each have elements that show they are man. Each have elements that show they are also supernatural. And they have elements that identify this figure with Yahweh. What are we to do with that? I spoke earlier that Isaiah said he preser- uh, that Yahweh would preserve a believing remnant. And they were disciples of Isaiah's teaching. They recognized that Isaiah taught the word of God. And they doubtless looked to these things in faith. But as the Apostle Paul said, it was a, it was a revelation that was partially hidden. That's why he calls it the mystery of Christ. Fast forward almost eight centuries and the disciples of Jesus also wrestled with these things. Before they were even called as disciples, they were enmeshed in this fishbowl of interpretation. Why has God been silent so long? The Jews asked. 
When will Messiah come? And how will we know the signs of His coming? Now, the disciples of Jesus, before they became disciples, were taught that Messiah's kingdom was the kingdom that was higher than any other. They were taught that Messiah existed before the creation of the world. They were taught that Messiah was called Christ the Lord, that He was of the house of David, that He was pure from sin. The disciples were taught these things before they became disciples. But there was one matter that the Jews could not resolve. There was one mystery that they had no categories for. One Christian scholar wrote that the Jews during the intertestamental period appear to have regarded the Messiah as far above the ordinary human, royal, prophetic, and even angelic type, listen to this, to such extent that the boundary line separating Messiah from divine personality is of the narrowest. So in other words, the Jews could not make sense of identifying Messiah as Yahweh come in the flesh. But as the disciples lived with Jesus, that line began to move. When the crowds heard the witness of God the Father at Jesus' baptism, that line moved. When Nathanael recognized that Jesus heard his private prayers, that line moved. When Peter caught a netload of fish at the word of Jesus, that line moved. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that line moved. When Jesus taught with authority and cast out demons, that line separating Him from divine moved. But when Jesus set His face like a flint to suffer at Jerusalem, the disciples could not understand We thought He was the royal Son. We thought He was the coming conqueror, not the suffering servant. God cannot die. In their estimation, when their rabbi was crucified and buried, their faith had failed. In the estimation of the Pharisees, Jesus was proved a fraud. I shall go fishing again, Peter said. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel from Rome, others said. Yet suddenly, light burst forth from the darkness. When Jesus of Nazareth, their rabbi, their friend, their Christ, and their Lord, appeared to them in the flesh post-burial, As the Apostle John said, when they touched the word of life, the very flesh that they had seen breathe his last, when they watched him ascend into heaven itself, the confession of Thomas became the confession of them all, my Lord and my God. And the line separating Jesus from divinity was henceforth forever erased. This is what Isaiah is proclaiming. This is the mystery of Christ. 
that Jesus of Nazareth is God come in the flesh. That he is the royal son, the suffering servant, and the coming conqueror. That he has exhibited that he is mighty God by defeating his people's greatest enemies, their flesh, their sin, the devil, and hell itself. And he did it in a way nobody expected. This is the central confession of the apostles, that Jesus is Yahweh, come in the flesh. And so I close asking you this question. Do you believe these things? To the non-Jew, to the Gentile, God commands you to believe on His Son. To the Jew, God commands you to bow down before your Messiah. To those of us in Emmanuel who have seen His glory and believed in Him, God commands us to call upon Him again. For the Scripture says, everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh Jesus will be saved. Let us pray. Holy Father, how wonderful is Your Scripture. How wonderful is Your Son, Your Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our God. He has shown that He is the mighty God. For He has done for His people what His people could not do for themselves. And Your Scripture tells us that everyone who calls upon His name will be saved. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. And so I would pray this morning, Father, that Your people here at Emmanuel would call upon Him again. That we would bend the knee before our Messiah, before our loving Savior. I pray for those who have not bent the knee to Your Son. He is a Savior, but He is also Judge. And so I pray that the terror of the Christ would drive His enemies to repentance, that they too may be saved. Father, as we continue in worship, we pray that Your Spirit would bless. Pray that You would help us and leave us not alone. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.
by observing the baptism of Brother Matthew Marion. And we have just had this great opportunity to hear about how our Christ is our mighty God. And now we see something as a result of His glorious power. You see, when we baptize someone, we do so on the basis of a person's profession of faith. And, and, and as we examine that person's profession of faith, we seek to see that that profession of faith is credible based upon the doctrinal accuracy of the profession and also on the manner of life that they have lived, that we have observed. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to understand here, and that is that a person whose manner of life and profession of faith that are in keeping with the biblical evidences of a true and saving faith, this is the result of nothing less than the very power of God. Amen. And so when we baptize Brother Matthew, consider afresh the power of God, which is able to take dead and rebellious sinners and make them alive in Christ and willing to follow Christ in all things. And so for those of you who are believers, I would ask you at this time if you would remember once again uh, God's glorious and saving power in your own life. And for those of you who may not be believers here this morning, I would ask you to take time now to think about your need to be made a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Matthew, can you say We stand together as we sing hymn number 218, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, 218. 